Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, hopefully your Bible is open now to Daniel chapter 2. Let's look there to that text. This is a very long pericope, and uh, we're going to have to work our way through it bit by bit. So I've divided it into five or six points, and we'll read each section as it comes. You remember that the book of Daniel is both biographical, uh, meaning that it's historical narrative, and the second half of it is uh, apocalyptical, that it, it talks about the end times. And so we're still in those first six chapters for the time being. And so it's historical narrative uh, and historical narrative tends to be rather lengthy. And in this particular chapter, it's telling the story of a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar have and uh, what resulted from that. And so the first thing that we see here is this is an impossible dream. Let's read the first four verses again. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. May the Lord add his blessing the reading of his word. Well, it says the king had some disturbing dreams. It's, it's in the plural here. And I take from that that it was something that uh, habitually was causing him to lose sleep. It was certainly causing him anxiety. Uh, perhaps he couldn't even remember the details when he woke up the next morning. We're not really sure about that. But uh, he, he certainly was used to controlling everything. And the fact that when he laid his head on his pillow at night, he couldn't control his unconscious dreams was bothersome to him. He didn't know the meaning of the dream, but he could tell that it was something that wasn't good. And so he thought that he could control this situation. And that really is the great theme of the book of Daniel, that God is sovereign and earthly kings are not. And so Nebuchadnezzar, because he was a man who was accustomed to being in control, commanded that his magicians and sorcerers be brought in and reveal this dream. And that is he used every worldly means at his disposable to handle a crisis. And by the way, this is how lost people try to handle crisis today. Uh, They use their own ingenuity. They use everything at their disposal short of calling upon their creator God for help. But of course, they and he fell short. And so it was an impossible dream uh, to interpret. Secondly, Uh, Because of that, he made an imprudent demand. Look at verse five. The king replied to the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb and your house will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and a great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to the servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you're bargaining for time inasmuch as you've seen that the command from me is firm. 
then if you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king in so much as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult and there's no one else who could declare it to the king except gods. Those dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Well, here's what Nebuchadnezzar said. Not only do you have to interpret the dream, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. You have to tell me the dream. Nebuchadnezzar, rather than acting like uh, the head of state, is behaving like a spoiled child. He's showing haste and impudence. Now, in just a few moments, we're going to see how Daniel handled the same crisis and, and see how differently they addressed the issue. And so he said, here's what I'm going to do. If you don't tell me the dream and its meaning, I'm going to rip you limb from limb. Not only you, but I'm going to destroy everyone in the land who fancies themselves a dream interpreter or a magician or a conjurer. Now, killing these people would have weakened his empire because many of them represented him in different parts of the nation. And it would have given Nebuchadnezzar a very well-earned reputation as a tyrant. And so all the Chaldeans, these conjurers and sorcerers could do was to stall for time. And they began to make complaints about the king's demand. He says, no king has ever made such a demand of anyone. And he said, the only person capable to do this is not a person at all. Only the gods could interpret this sort of dream and tell you what you have dreamed. You see, these Chaldeans, these magicians, these sorcerers were used to faking it. And so typically what would happen is the king would come to them and say, here's what I dreamed. And then he would relate the details of the dream. And then they sort of had a code book in which they said, okay, if you dream this, this is what it means. Well, without the knowledge of the dream, they had no way to even make up a response. And so Nebuchadnezzar, of course, knew this. He, he was not a dummy. He knew that uh, most people are going to tell a king what, he think, what they think he wants to hear. And so he says, I'm not going to give them that opportunity. And so here's the point of the first 12 verses. Nebuchadnezzar exhausted every resource that he could think of to find a solution to this crisis and it came up zero. And so now enter God's man, Daniel, the intervention of Daniel, verse 13. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. And then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. And he said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? And then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to the house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven and Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever 
for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you've made known to me what we requested of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, who the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation of the king. Well, Daniel is described here as responding to this crisis situation with discretion and discernment. If there's anything that our nation needs right now in its leaders, it's discretion and discernment. Discretion is the quality of behaving and speaking in such a way as to avoid causing needless offense. Now, there are certain things that are offensive by nature. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is offensive because it calls men and women sinners and calls them into account and calls them to repentance and confession and contrition. But we need not be personally offensive. Certainly, we should never be personally offensive with purpose. So we need to be men and women of discretion. But we also need to be men and women of discernment. That is, we analyze what's going on in the world and respond to that crisis with wisdom. Daniel was a man of great wisdom. God gives wisdom, the scripture says, to those who ask him. James chapter 1, verse 5. If anyone needs wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men freely and he'll give it. Now you have to remember that Daniel was still a very, very young man. This probably is the first time that he's been called before the king with any sort of service to render. It's a crisis moment in his life. And hear this, note this, crisis moments are opportunities for God's people to think, talk, and behave differently than a lost and dying world. And indeed for Christians, it's an opportunity to bear clear witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in these times of crisis and all times really, God's people should be fundamentally different. So, so I wanna describe for you using Daniel as a template, how God's people should be different from a lost and dying world. Number one, we should be trustworthy. You'll notice verse 15 says that Arioch who was one of the king's servants, went in to Daniel and told him what was going on. I take from that that Daniel had earned Arioch's trust. He didn't go in and just kill him indiscriminately. He wanted him to know what was happening. And, and so I think they had a prior existing relationship based on trust. God's people also should be wise. As I said, look at verse 16. Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation of the king. That's a wise thing to do. He needed to gather his thoughts, he needed to gather his prayer partners, and he needed to give God an opportunity to reveal to him this dream. And the third quality of God's people in times of crisis is we should be confident. Daniel said, if you'll give me some time, I will declare the meaning. Now, how did Daniel know that he was going to be able to declare the meeting? Well, you have to go up to chapter 1, verse 17, which says, As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom, semicolon, 
Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. God had gifted him uniquely to understand these dreams. And Daniel knew who he was, knew how God had gifted him. And he believed firmly that God was going to reveal not only the content of this dream, but its meaning. God's people ought to be confident in their gifts. And then verse 17 shows that Daniel was connected to God's people. Then Daniel went into the house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they could pray that God would be merciful. God did not create his people and he did not save individual Christians to be islands unto themselves. He created us for community that we each use our spiritual gifts in the context of a local church. And so when you're going through a personal crisis or your business is going through a crisis or your family's going through a crisis or even when a nation is going through a crisis, one of your first thoughts ought to be to run to church, to connect with God's people so that they can join you in prayer and so that they could give you godly counsel. And speaking of, of running to the church for prayer, verse 18 says that Daniel certainly was prayerful. He and his friends requested compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, that they would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And so not only were they prayerful, they were also worshipful. Look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Daniel knew that this is how God had uh, been teaching him and given him the ability to do that. And sure enough, God revealed this to him in a night vision. And Daniel's reflex response was to worship. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven and said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. Worship ought to be like the air we breathe, even in a crisis situation. And part of being worshipful is being thankful. And verse 23 summarizes that thankful disposition of Daniel and his friends. He says, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. And so you put all of those characteristics together and uh, you, you come to a person who's different and fundamentally so from most people in the world. And so what we're really talking about is courage. Last week's message was called the courage of conviction. And that really is the theme that we see throughout these first six chapters of Daniel and indeed throughout his lifetime is he was a man of courage. Now, now can you imagine a young man, probably still a teenager, having the courage to walk into the throne room of the most powerful emperor in the world, look him right in the eye and speak to him as a peer. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Even though the king has said to destroy them, Daniel says, I'm superseding that. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Now something about the relationship between Arioch and Daniel caused Arioch to obey Daniel rather than the king. And I think it's a combination of all of those characteristics. He was trustworthy, he was wise, confident, connected to his people, prayerful, worshipful, thankful, and above all, courageous. But really, theologically speaking, the reason Daniel could be courageous is that he was focused on God's glory and not himself. Verse 25, 
Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. This is Arioch to the king. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Now we don't know much about Arioch, but he seems to be an opportunist polit politically. He knows that if he can connect himself to Daniel and Daniel's able to pull this off, that he's going to be elevated as well. So he said, I have found this man. And uh, the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen in its interpretation? And Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. So Daniel is reminding the king that you have exhausted every one of your resources and come up to a sum total of zero. And then he says, Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, now hear this, this is the most important sentence in this chapter. However, there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. Daniel is absolutely insistent that whatever becomes of this interview and interaction with he and King Nebuchadnezzar, that God is going to get the glory. And that really describes a man who is known for humility. Verse 29, as for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. I think what is so special about Daniel is that he knew who he was. Daniel was confident, but it was not self-confidence. He was not arrogant. He was not conceited. He was confident because he knew he was God's man for the moment. And so he could walk in as a teenager into the presence of a man who could strike him dead instantly, look him in the eye and say, there is a God in heaven. Your magicians couldn't do it, but, but God can. And he's going to, but he says, don't give me the credit for it. He says, I, I'm no smarter than any of these magicians, but God in his sovereignty has chosen to use me as the vehicle and the means to tell you the interpretation of this dream. And, and by the way, that is the attitude that every Christian should have when we are witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ. People may, may say, well, why is it that of all of the religions of the world, that you have suddenly found the truth. How can you be so sure? And we can say, it's not because of any wisdom in me, but there is a God in heaven who by his spirit opened my blind eyes and showed with me the truth. And so we can speak with the same confidence of Daniel to a lost and dying world. And so that's the setup. Now let's turn to the interpretation of the dream, the interpretation revealed, verse 31. Here's Daniel speaking directly to the king. And he says, you, O king, were looking, he's talking about the dream now, and behold, there was a single great statue 
That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed all the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so remember the king says, not only do you have to interpret the dream, you first have to tell me what the dream was. So Daniel says, okay, here's the dream. Uh, You were out looking one day and you saw in the distance a statue and a great statue, a a huge statue that I, I take towered over the landscape. And then he began to describe this statue was of a man. And the head of the man was made of gold, fine and pure gold. Um, And then its chest and arms were made out of silver. Its middle and thighs were made out of bronze. Its legs of iron and its feet were a mixture of, of clay and iron. And so now he's got the king's attention. It would have been impossible short of a miracle to know what was in someone else's dream, but Daniel was able to do that. Now in verse 36, we get down to the nitty gritty. Here is the interpretation of the dream. It's one thing to know the dream. It's quite another to know what it means. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. Now, Daniel was a young man, but, but he knew how to talk to kings. He knew how to speak their language. Now, this wasn't flattery. He was just espousing facts. Nebuchadnezzar was the undisputed sovereign of that part of the world. And when Daniel describes him the name king of kings, he's not ascribing to him deity. He's just saying you are the greatest and the most powerful king in the world. And that was simply a fact. And he's about to tell him something that he likely doesn't want to hear. And so he says, you are the head of gold. Now, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to hear that. Gold is the most precious and valuable of the metals. And and so that certainly stoked his ego. And then verse 39, after you, there will arise another kingdom. Now, I suspect Nebuchadnezzar knew that intellectually. He had seen the cycle of life enough to know that kings don't last forever, but he was still a relatively young man himself and went on to have a very long career. But the the truth is that I've often said, kings and kingdoms all have a hyphen between two numbers. That is, we are all temporary in nature and kingdoms are temporary in nature. He says that kingdom that follows you is going to be inferior to you than another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, insomuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all things in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it 
will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Now, here is the picture. And by the way, this interpretation is prophetic. These are things that are happening in the future. And it's so accurate historically that remember I've told you that liberal scholars refused to believe that it was actually prophecy, that certainly it must have been written after the, the fact because no prophecy could be so accurate. And so here's what happened. The Babylonian kingdom lasted 80 years and it was displaced and replaced by the Medo-Persians. And so if Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon is the head of gold, and then the chest and arms made out of silver would be the Medo-Persian empire, which lasted about another 200 years. And then the middle and thighs, the kingdom that displaced the Medo-Persians was the, the Greek empire, which of course was expanded by Alexander the Great, the son of Philip of Macedon. And remember, Alexander was swift and extended the, the Greek empire as far as India, but made his capital and his headquarters this city of Babylon. And he died in his very early 30s, having conquered all of the known world. But that empire was short-lived as well. When Alexander died, it was divided into several of his generals. And then following upon the heels of the Greek empire, of course, was the Roman empire. That empire, which was in existence during the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, it lasted over 500 years, its legs were of iron. Iron, though it's less valuable than either silver, bronze, or gold, is incredibly strong. And this was a strong and sturdy empire that it could last 500 years. I remember some years ago, I was in Europe and I was at the site of a medieval castle. And there was an archeological dig going on in which they had discovered that underneath the ruins of this medieval castle was a road which was constructed by the Romans, which dated back uh, over 1500 years, really nearly 2000 years. And what an amazing thought is as we think about how our roads and bridges and infrastructure are in such need of repair that, that thousands of years ago, the Roman empire was so strong that it extended its road system and its network all over the world. But the Roman Empire came to an end as well. And so that leads to the feet, which are made of a mixture of iron and a mixture of clay. This is the final world empire. And because there are 10 toes, and by the way, there are other um, imagery and, and dreams we'll see later on the book of Daniel that explain this in more detail, that this final empire that is yet to come, all these other things we read about in the history book now, at the time of Daniel, they were yet to happen, but we look back them in retrospect now. We, we see these various empires, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks and the Romans. But, but this final empire is still yet to come. And so what will it be? Well, we don't exactly know other than that it's going to suffer the same fate of all these others, that it is ultimately going to be destroyed. Remember, there's this other image we've not touched on yet. Once he's described this statue, he says, then there came a great stone, which was cut out of a mountain. I take it a huge boulder, but it was not cut with human hands. Well, since no human hand was on it, it tells us it's, it's divine in nature. Man didn't do it. And, and, and it's going to 
dash to pieces, the scripture says, and spread like chaff. Chaff is the husk of the wheat that they throw the wheat in the air and the wind would take away that refuse. That is, it's going to dash this great statue and break it into fine particles so that there's no evidence that it even ever existed. Now, what is this incredible stone? Well, verse uh, 44 tells us, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all the kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true. And its interpretation is trustworthy. Well, friends, we don't have to wonder what that great stone that God has provided is. This is none other than the kingdom of God, which is established through the Messiah. This stone is Jesus. In fact, in Luke chapter 20, we've been studying in that chapter recently, Jesus described himself as the stone which the builders of Israel rejected. That has become the chief cornerstone. You remember what he said to the Pharisees? That you are going to be dashed to pieces by this stone. That is, kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But Jesus' kingdom will last forever. This is the fulfillment, friends, of the Davidic covenant that we've studied. God the Father promised to King David that through his descendants there would be one day an eternal kingdom one that would not have an end to it. And this is Christ's kingdom. Now, this is a, a messianic prophecy. And Daniel is so confident in it, he looks the king right in the eye and says, this dream is true, that is, it's going to happen, and its interpretation is trustworthy. He says, you can go to the bank with it. Now, the question is, would the king believe him? Well, he certainly got his attention when he told him the details of his dream, this made him a very special and different young man. But when he told him the interpretation, he did believe it. Look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel. Can you imagine what those who were his attendants thought when the king of this great empire got down and bowed down and did homage to Daniel, a teenage Israelite. They were used to seeing people coming from all over the world, powerful, well-educated, wealthy people, and bowing down and kissing Nebuchadnezzar's ring. Now he's paying homage to this young boy. And the king answered Daniel and said, surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Well, here is an indirect blessing. Now, now we first see some direct blessings from God answering this prayer of Daniel's. Da Daniel did get some blessings. Number one, he was honored before everyone. He was honored before everyone. And then secondly, he got a promotion. He, he got a better job. And then thirdly, he was given many great and valuable gifts. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. I pray for all of the men and women in our church who are professionals, that 
The Lord would give you favor with the owners of your businesses and with your supervisors that you could get promotions and better jobs, not so that you could grow wealthy and forget the Lord, but so that you could give him glory and exert greater influence in the company. And then his greatest blessing was that through his life, the king of Babylon gave glory to the God of Israel. Do you remember how this book started? This wicked King Nebuchadnezzar going down to the holy city of Jerusalem, ransacking it, taking off its best and brightest young men into captivity. But not only that, he raided the temple and took away the holy vessels, the instruments that were used in the worship of Jehovah God and placed them in the temple of his wicked God, Marduk. And now we fast forward just a few years and the king's bowing down to one of God's prophets and he's declaring that the true God is the God of Israel. What a blessing. Within Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also received some indirect blessings for having known Daniel. Verse 49, and Daniel made request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Remember I told you last week that I try, my wife and I try to surround our four children with godly influences. And I said the greatest advice I ever got from our former pastor was to choose our children's friends for them without them knowing we're doing it. And I told you, I introduced them to godly men and women through biography and by bringing godly men and women who live today into our home for a meal and spending time with them. And the reason is something we find here in that is when you are around godly people who are walking close to him, when he blesses them, by virtue of your close proximity to them, you're gonna get some blessing too. You remember the 23rd Psalm and David is describing God's protection and providence in his life. He said, my cup runneth over. That means that God has blessed David so much that it spilled over the side. And, and so Daniel was blessed so much by God that he could not contain it all himself. So he had to share it with his friends. And God's blessing spilled over to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so when Daniel got a promotion, he didn't forget about his friends and they too got promotions. And so all of them were blessed. But of course, the greatest blessing individually was that they didn't lose their lives. Really, that was their original prayer. Lord, don't uh, let this king take our life through his impudence. But look, it's not just that Daniel and his three friends' lives were spared. This action spared the lives of countless other Chaldeans. And so that, that brings us to our conclusion today. What can we glean and understand from this episode in the life of Daniel? I think six things that I've written down here. Number one, Christians, we need to remember that like Daniel, we are strangers in a strange land. This world is not our home. We don't need to get too comfortable here. What we need to know at any moment, <laughs> we can be arrested. At any moment, the culture can turn on us. And so we, we don't need to be too heavily invested here. Secondly, like Daniel and his three friends, we're not here on a vacation. We have work to do. We have our job. Scripture says that for every believer, we have been given at least one spiritual gift. 
And not only are we gifted uniquely, individually, collectively, Jesus describes the presence of the church in the world in two ways. We are salt and light. And you know that light exposes darkness and our job is to expose sin and ignorance in the world. And, and light is significant of truth. And Jesus says of himself that he is the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father except through him. And so when we take the gospel to the world, we shine light into a dark world. But we're also to be salt. We are a preserving agent in the world. Now, since sin entered the world through our first parents, this world has been decaying. It is rotten and getting worse. And the only thing from, that keeps it from being as bad as it possibly could be is the presence of a remnant of God's people in the world. We are to preserve and intercede, I take it, and intervene as Daniel did prayerfully for his own society. And like Daniel, our ultimate goal is not our own comfort. It is the glory of God. Jesus said in the New Testament to his followers, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Did you hear that in Daniel's tone when he was speaking to Arioch and then later to King Nebuchadnezzar? Every time they wanted to say, add a boy to Daniel, he deflected that towards praise to his God. He says, I'm not any smarter or wiser than any of these Chaldeans who couldn't figure this out. God in his sovereignty used me as his instrument to bring glory to himself. Here's something I think we, we need to learn from Daniel. Remember I said Daniel knew who he was, knew what his purpose was, and he was confident in carrying out his mission. Listen, Christians, you need to hear this very clearly. This world is on fire. It's going downhill at a breakneck speed. And the only hope we have is Jesus. And the only means of getting that message to a lost and dying world is Christians. And so really the presence of Christianity in the world is the only hope, not only for this nation, but for in the entirety of civilization what Jesus accomplishes through his church. Daniel was the only hope of those people up in Babylon. Only hope of that king. And our intercession and our prayers and our evangelism is ultimately the only hope for our country. So we must follow Daniel's example in times of crisis. Daniel was going through a time of crisis. There was the threat of genocide in Daniel's day. And friends, we're going through a crisis today. There's a crisis of confidence in our governmental officials. There's a racial divide in our country. There, there's a division like most of us never dreamed we'd see. And yet the Lord has placed us in the world, I believe, for such a time as this. And so what politicians do of all stripes and in all parties is that they exhaust every resource available to them. They call in the experts, they call in the political scientists, they call in negotiators, they call in all their favors, and they can't do one thing to alleviate this crisis. But you know what Daniel said was true in his day is just as true today. There is a God in heaven. 
And he's as powerful today as he's ever been. And you have, as a believer, the spirit of living God dwelling within you. And you're in this world and in this culture for a reason. And that is to bring glory to the Savior. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And, and when that happens, he's going to bless you. I'm not saying he's going to make your life easy. I'm not saying he's going to promote you to the corner office. I'm saying God honors those who honor him. And when he blesses you in whatever way, let your cup overflow to bless everyone around you. Let that blessing be known to your children and to your extended family and to your friends and to your church family, your neighborhood, your city, your state, and your nation. Your presence at your place of business, in your home, on your sports team, in your school, is a design of a sovereign God so that he may be glorified among a people who have exhausted every resource at their disposal and it's come to zero. Let's pray that the Lord would use us this week that way. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouragement and the inspiration that we receive from studying the life of Daniel and his three friends. And Father, I pray for every believer, pray for myself, that we would have the traits of Daniel in this world, that we'd be trustworthy and wise. Father, that we'd be confident knowing who we are in you, that we'd stay connected to other people of faith here in the local church. And Father, that we would run to you in prayer. And then when you answer that prayer, Lord, we'd thank you and, and worship you. And Father, when the time comes to take action, that we would be decisive and courageous and Father, that ultimately our lives would be aimed at bringing the most glory to the Lord Jesus. To the Lord Jesus. And Father, I pray through that process we'd not grow arrogant or prideful, but that we'd give you the glory and praise and we'd remain humble. And Father, I, I pray for every member of the church just this would be the order of the day this week as we go into our spheres of influence, as we go back to our homes, as we go to restaurants, as we go back to school, as we go back to work, Lord, would you uh, help us to be men and women like Daniel? And when that happens, we'll be sure to give you the praise, honor, and glory. And we pray these requests in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org dot o-r-g